0: If you brought a Bible, we are in Luke chapter 22, and in Luke 22, already, here's what we've seen. We've seen Judas arrange to betray Jesus. We've seen Jesus and the apostles get together for the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, Last week, we saw the apostles' arrogance, that was two weeks ago, the apostles' arrogance in discussing who's the greatest. And then we saw Peter tell Jesus he would never deny him. And Jesus says, no, Peter, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. So that's all happened in in chapter 22. Now, Jesus gets up from the table. The apostles follow him. He leaves the upper room. He goes eastward down the valley, the Kidron Valley, crosses the brook, probably a bridge there. Goes up the Mount of Olives, and he goes to a garden of olive trees called Gethsemane, which means olive press which is uh, a great picture because he is going to be crushed under the burden of even contemplating what he is about to do. And that's where we pick up in Luke 22, verse 39. We will let this pass here. Verse 39. And he came out and went Not my will, but yours be done. I'm going to read that again. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Have you ever caught that? Now in Luke's gospel, there's only one prayer. In Matthew's gospel, He comes back a second time and a third time and prays. And in the middle of these prayers, God sends an angel from heaven to strengthen Jesus. In Matthew's gospel, it says he was at the point of death as he anticipated what was going on. So God sends an angel. Verse 44, And being in uh, in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his Sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. There's actually a condition when a person is under tremendous stress that the capillaries break and the blood mingles with the sweat and you sweat, sweat and blood. Right? And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, I'm going to focus our attention on verse 42, which I read twice. And to understand verse 42 requires us to plumb the depths of the complexity of of the Godhead. One member of the Trinity praying to another member of the Trinity saying, not my will, but thy will be done. Are there two wills? There are clearly two, at least two persons. Are the wills in opposition? What is going on here? Now, as we unpack... Verse 42, I want to use it as an apologetic to address a particular heresy that some of you may be aware of. If you aren't, I want to make you aware of it. All my life, even before I truly became a Christian, I always understood that Jesus voluntarily went to the cross... To take our place as our substitute to endure the wrath of God that we deserved for our sin. I mean, that's what I grew up believing. Then I became a believer. That's what I believed even more. And as I study the Bible, that's what I believe. The theological phrase is penal. Substitutionary atonement. All right, that's what theologians say. Penal substitutionary atonement. Here's what it means. Penal means he's paying a penalty. Substitutionary means that he is doing it not for his sin, but in our place, for our sin. In atonement, he's doing it to pay the price for our sin to make us right with God. Penal substitutionary atonement. Now, today, there's a whole bunch of preachers and teachers and people on the internet who say, no, that's totally wrong. And here's what they say. Whatever Jesus was doing on the cross, it was not God the Father Punishing Jesus in our place. You say, well, what do they think he was doing? Well, they they would say he was defeating Satan. And that's true. That's scriptural. He was defeating Satan. They would say he's demonstrating his love. And that's true. God demonstrates his love for us in this. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Yep, demonstrating his love. He was giving us an example. Yep, Philippians 2, we are to follow his example of sac- sacrificial love, okay? They would emphasize all that, but they would say he's not enduring the wrath of God. That's a horrible picture of God. I've mentioned before there's um, two documentaries called The American Gospel a lot of you have seen the first one because it's on Netflix. There's a second one available. And this one is called American Gospel 2. The subtitle is Christ Crucified. Right? And there are advocates of this view that say whatever he was doing, he wasn't dying under the wrath of God. There's a fellow named Steve Chalk who says says this, that penal substitutionary atonement is cosmic child abuse to think that Jesus was dying under the Father's wrath that's wrong, that would be cosmic child abuse there's a guy named Rob Bell, some of you know about him he mockingly says that penal substitutionary atonement can be summed up this way God's less grumpy because of Jesus Okay. A guy named Brian Zahn says this, The God who's mollified by throwing a virgin in a volcano or by nailing his son to a tree is not the Abba Father of Jesus. So, there's a, there's a movement afoot that says whatever Jesus was doing on the cross, he was not... Paying the penalty for your sin under the wrath of God. Now, the basic premise is this. It's very simple. They say, well, God expects us to forgive others without blood sacrifice. Just forgive them. And if he expects us to do that, certainly he's able to do that. Right, the the proof text that is brought up is the prodigal son. The son returns to the father. The father runs to the son, embraces him, forgives him. There's no blood sacrifice. There's uh, there's a there's the fatted calf is slain, but that's not a sacrifice. That's just dinner. Right, but they say if this glorious parable about the father who's God forgiving the son who's us can take place without blood why can't God do that so some of you may have heard about this some of you may kind of have heard about this Um, it's catching on so here's what I want to do this morning I want to zero in. I want to ask three questions that will help us address this, this issue. And verse 42 is really going to help us in understanding the answer to these three, three questions. So, question number one. Did Jesus endure the wrath of God on the cross? Okay, was Jesus dying under the wrath of God on the the cross. Look at verse 42. Here's his prayer Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. What cup? Now, taken totally out of biblical context, we can fill that cup with whatever we want. But how is the cup referred to? elsewhere in scripture. Take a look at Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51, 17. Now Isaiah is talking to the Israelites who have endured Babylonian captivity. And he says to them, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Jeremiah also refers to a cup of wrath. So the Jewish readers of Luke's gospel would have associated the cup that Jesus was speaking of with the cup of wrath. It's also in the book of Revelation. Revelation 14:9, and another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Here's the cup, and in it is God's anger and wrath. So the rejecters of penal substitutionary atonement may not think the cross is about God's wrath, but Jesus sure thought it was. Remove this cup from me. Let me approach it from another angle. I teach Romans again and again and again. I teach, uh, I'm teaching three sections of Romans right now, and this is the third semester I've taught several sections of Romans. So I get to study Romans a lot. Romans is the gospel. Romans is 16 chapters laying out all the elements of the gospel. The gospel means good news. It's good news in that it solves our greatest problem. Well, does Romans anywhere talk about what our greatest problem is? Yeah. Romans 1.18 says... For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. The good news of the gospel solves the problem that we're sinners under the wrath of God. And, and I've said this before, your number one problem is not a marital problem, it's not a financial problem, it's not a parenting problem, it's not an election problem. It's not a political problem. It's not a crabgrass problem. It's not a weight problem. Those all may be problems. But your real problem, your ultimate problem, is a wrath problem. In fact, the book of Romans mentions the wrath, or mentions the word wrath, 11 times. The New Testament mentions the wrath of God, or the, I should say the word wrath, 47 times. You know, sometimes you hear, well, the Old Testament God was a God of wrath. The New Testament God is a God of love. Nope, same God, same God. And God, in his love, solves our wrath problem. Right? Same God, same problem, same solution. Jesus dying in our place on the cross. Let me approach it from one more angle. And that is this. Jesus is in the garden, and he's facing death. Now, think about this. Many people have faced death. Many Christians have faced crucifixion. Polycarp, 86-year-old man, faced burning at the stake, and he did. He was burned at the stake. I'm reading now about some Reformation martyrs who were burned at the stake. And many of them faced death without trembling. Why is Jesus terrified? Why? Is an angel sent to strengthen him? Why is he sweating blood? Why is he at the point of death already in the garden? Because in his death, he's facing not just the nails, but the wrath of God. Now, you say, why does this matter? Here's why it matters. When the mission of the church is no longer to rescue people from the eternal wrath of God by proclaiming the gospel, the mission will inevitably become some other thing. A social issue, a political issue, the latest issue. Trendiness may draw numbers, but it saves no one From hell. The church is called to the highest calling there is to proclaim the good news, to save people from the wrath of God, because God, the Son, endured the wrath. All right? So, the first question I ask is Did Jesus endure the wrath of God? Yes. Second question I want to ask. Is the cross divine child abuse? That's a phrase. By the way, if you if you if you hear that phrase that the cross is divine child abuse, run, run. Okay, a lot of authors, a lot of bloggers, a lot of churches um, using that phrase. Is the cross divine child abuse? Right. Well, the people who don't like Penal Substitutionary Atonement in this documentary, The American Gospel II, um, they point to a sermon illustration that they all grew up hearing. Um, I don't think I've used it in a while, but it's the story, and they don't like this story, okay? but they use it to say, see what you guys believe, this is horrible. It's the story of the drawbridge operator. Uh There's a bridge, a train, a train tracks going over a bridge over a river and the train bridge gear operator uh, opens the bridge for boats to get through and closes it for the train to to go through. One day he brings his little son to work. The son likes playing around uh, and he, he works his way down into the gearbox of the, the, the bridge and the father hears a train coming in the distance and the bridge is up so he has a dilemma and that pretty much sums it up right there Here's a dilemma. If he leaves the bridge up, his son lives, but the hundreds of people on the train die. If he closes the bridge, he saves the people, but his son dies. There's not enough time to run down and save his son. He has a decision to make, and in agony, he closes the bridge, killing the son saving the people. Now, those who don't like penal substitutionary atonement, they say, see, even your best illustration of the gospel communicates that the son was killed against his will. The father closed the bridge. It was the only thing he could do in your theology. But the victim... The unwitting victim was the son. How do, you, how do we respond to that? Well, here's how I respond to that. Every illustration I have ever given falls apart at some point. When you, when, when you compare it to what Scripture teaches, every analogy falls apart at some point. That analogy I think does a great job of illustrating substitution that it's either the people who die or the son who dies it, it does a great job of illustrating substitution but the problem is it pictures an unwilling victim all right scripture does not portray Jesus as an unwilling victim take a look at John 10 John 10:17 10, and 18 Jesus says For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again no one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Couldn't be clearer. Jesus came for the purpose of dying on the cross. No one takes his life from him, but he voluntarily lays it down and takes it up of his own accord, his his own will, right? But what about the words, not my will, in the garden? Not my will, but thy will. Not mine, but yours, right? How can there be two wills? Well, let me pause right here and say, you know what? This makes something very clear. There's another heresy. Um, It's called oneness theology. There's a group of people who don't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. They say there's one God and... There may be three persons, but it's the same person morphing into the other persons at any given time. So the Father morphs into the Son, and the Son morphs into the Holy Spirit. But there's not three distinct persons. It's called what's that called, George? Modalism. It's called modalism. Um, No, we we believe Scripture teaches that there's only one God and three distinct persons all at the same time. How else, and I should say this, who else is Jesus talking to? If one person morphs into the other, who's Jesus saying not my will, but thy will too? Right? There are at least two people here at the same time. And we believe, for all eternity, those three have existed. But back to the words, not my will, but Thy will. How, how do we how do we explain the difference in will here, if they are unified as one God? Well, let me uh, let let me separate out. Some different elements of the willing process. Okay, let me talk about the desirous will, the deliberating will, and the determinative will. All right, the desirous will is what your emotions desire. At any given moment. And pretty much all of us who who are human desire to avoid pain. Right? I'm not into pain. No human is into pain. But then there's the deliberating will. What's that? Well, that's when you bring other factors into your decision making that are greater than just your comfort. Okay, Maybe a grander plan that you need to factor in Maybe um, your family factoring their benefit in Maybe the salvation of individuals So there's the deliberating will Which is more than just the desirous will And then there is the determinative will Where after you've done your deliberating You lock in, final answer right and you decide so all of us in making decisions go through these three stages okay so let me let me give you uh, an illustration and i worked all week long thinking of this this illustration that that isn't perfect but it's, it, it illustrates what's going on here in the garden. Okay, Imagine that there are three, there are triplets, three siblings, adult siblings stranded on a desert island. One of them is dying of kidney failure. One of them is perfectly healthy. The third one just happens to be a surgeon and... As on Gilligan's Island, they were on a three hour tour, and the surgeon happens to have a scalpel and some sutures with him. Okay? But no anesthesia. So they get together and they talk about the situation. And it's conclusive that without a kidney transplant, the one sibling's going to die. So they all agree that the healthy sibling will submit to surgery, remove the kidney, and the the dying sibling will have his kidneys removed, and the healthy kidney will go in. Right? I heard of uh, one set of brothers. One gave his kidney to the other, and then this was a comedian. He said, uh, now my brother only has one kidney, and I have three. No, no. Um, Keep up, people. Try to follow. <laughs> All right, so so here on the uh, on the island, they've decided, and this would be equated to the eternal decision in the Trinity for Jesus to come and die. But imagine the night before the brother who's going to lose his kidney starts to become terrified of the pain that he's going to go through. And he sweats. And he talks to the others, and he's like, is there any other way for this to happen? And they help him think it through. You don't have to do this. But then he he, he, he realizes, if I don't, my sibling's going to die. So he locks in and says, we're going to do it. And the next day, he goes, goes through with it. During that struggle, it would be legitimate for him to say, not my will, meaning, Not my desirous will, but thy will, meaning our collective will that we decided on, be done. That's what's going on in the garden. Jesus isn't going to the cross against his will. Let's put it this way. He is Willingly submitting his desirous will to the agreed-upon will of the Trinity. And that final decision, his decisive will, is truly his voluntary choice. But the fact that this is agonizing tells us a tremendous amount about the Trinity. First of all, there are distinct persons in the Trinity, Secondly, Jesus was not just a programmed robot. You are one of the members of the Trinity, go down and die on the cross. No, he's a real person. Right? His choice was a real choice. And and here's the big thing that I want you to take away his divinity did not remove his agony. His divinity did not remove his agony. Sometimes we can think, well, he's the God, man. He, he went to the cross, but he's God, so he probably didn't feel much. No. Fully human. Real choice, fully human, real nails, real wrath of God, he endured on our behalf. Okay. Now, under this point, and the, and the last point will be really quick, but under this point when one of these people mocks and says well the gospel of penal substitutionary atonement is God is less grumpy because of Jesus they think the gospel we believe is that God is this grumpy angry God who needs blood and vengeance and wrath but Jesus is the nice guy in the Trinity who holds back God's anger dies on the cross and now he makes God happy. Right? Understand that while God is three in person, he's still only one in essence. The decision to send Jesus was done out of love. There's this verse in the Bible that says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Love was God's motive in sending his son Jesus. Right? Now, Last question, and this will this will go fast. Why can't God just forgive without payment? So back to the prodigal son. The father in the prodigal son receives back his son who asked for his share of the inheritance. The father doesn't demand blood. He just forgives them, right? Or is it that easy? Remember, the father had to liquidate the son's share of the estate, and there were two sons, so it was either half or a third, depending on uh, how you divide it up, but um, he lost a third of his estate the son didn't pay it back so guess what to forgive the father assumed the payment the father ate the debt for forgiveness there was payment god's love desires to forgive. God's justice his holy justice though demands penalty demands payment right take a look at Romans 3:25 it's speaking of Jesus whom God put forward and As a propitiation, by the way, the word propitiation means a sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God. So, so Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. All right? God is showing that he is righteous, that he is holy. Because... In his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Now, don't misunderstand that. This doesn't mean that everybody before the cross got a pass. This means that people who are in heaven, like David and Daniel and Moses and Hezekiah and just all the true believers in the Old Testament, how'd they get into heaven? He had passed over their sins because there was no substitute. There were animal sacrifices, but Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats can never truly take away sins. So what, what this verse means is he passed over them in that they're in heaven, but their sins have not yet been paid for. Now, look at verse 26. It, okay, the cross, the propitiation was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of those of the one who has faith in Jesus. God's justice is in question here. You know, a lot of times we say, how can a loving God send people to hell? Paul's addressing this question. How can a just God bring people to heaven? And Romans 3.26 says this. God is perfect. He's holy. He's perfect in love, but he's perfect in justice. His justice demands that payment be made. His love allows a substitute and he, part of the Trinity steps in and pays the price so, sum it up did Jesus endure the wrath of God? yes, he drank the cup of wrath was it divine child abuse? no it was a volitional going to the cross, an agonizing but a volitional choice Can't God just blink and ignore our sin? No, his holy justice requires that a price be paid. Most people don't find out till it's too late that someone has to pay the price. Most people don't find out till it's too late that someone has to pay the price. You can pay it yourself (laughs) or let someone else, but who would be that nice to pay a debt that isn't his? Well, I know someone like that, and he's your best friend. He really is. He really loves you. Let's listen to this song.
1: Till it's too late that someone has to pay the price. You can pay it yourself, or let someone else, but who would be that night nice to pay? You say you've heard everything that's ever been said About the way, the truth, the light You say you've heard lots of preaching all before is real.
0: Some people won't find out till it's too late that someone has to pay the price. You can pay it yourself or let someone else ha in the live version. But who would be that nice? So maybe maybe you're here this morning and you've kind of understood Christianity and it's about a cross and it's about heaven and hell, but the pieces aren't all lined up. Uh, My prayer is that you would understand some, some simple things. Your greatest problem is a wrath problem. There is a very real judgment day coming, and none of us passes on our own. Yes, God is a loving God, but he is a just God. So he must punish sin. And that's what Jesus did. A real real person who lived 2,000 years ago. He really walked on those dusty roads over there in Israel. And he really was 100% God and 100% man. He lived a perfect life. And he submitted... Volitionally, to die on the cross to pay your debt. Rose from the dead, you ascended into heaven. He's with us right now in spirit. And His Spirit opens our eyes, maybe after a lifetime of not getting it, of being confused, of running from Him, but He opens our eyes to see that our problem really is we are sinners. And the solution really is that He is our Saviour. He really died and his debt pays the full price for our sins. And you go, What do I what do I do? What do I do? You open your heart and receive him. He pays for your sin. He reconciles you to himself. He gives you eternal life. That's the good news. Did you bow your heads? Lord, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your death on the cross. It is our only hope. You are our only hope. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would uh, move in the hearts of those who have been either confused or resistant. Just open hearts. And if, if that's you, just in the quietness of your heart, cry out and say, Lord Jesus, save me. I trust in you to be my Savior. And Lord, for those who have already received you, I pray that you would renew in our hearts the gospel. Remind us of your great love, of your substitutionary death. And, Lord, we we just ask that as we walk in this crazy world that you would be our priority, that we wouldn't be distracted running after shiny objects, but people would see a difference in us and that that difference would be you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.